Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke, the 14th chapter. We're going to look at verses 25 through 33 this morning. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. The Bible says there, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise... Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And let's pray. Father, once again, we're thankful to be in this place, and we thank you for the folks who have come to be in the church house. Now, Lord, they need to hear from you. They need to hear the, from the Holy Spirit of God. No doubt there are unsaved people in our midst who need to come to Christ this morning. They need to realize what, what lies ahead if they if they die without the Lord, without Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then for those who are saved, we need to hear from heaven and be convicted and convinced of changes that you want to make in our lives. Lord, we have a brand new year ahead of us and help us to have that desire to be better Christians this year than we were last year. So Lord, meet the need, speak to hearts, give me strength of voice that I might be the messenger boy you'd have me to be. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's very evident, especially if you're listening to the political uh, things that are going on in our country, that we're living in a very selfish generation. We're living in an age where people everywhere are wrapped up in themselves, and people elevate their own satisfaction and well-being above all else. A part of this selfish and self-centered attitude of our generation is the desire of folks to have everything and yet to get everything free and without cost. Folks today want good jobs but are unwilling to pay the price of hard work and sacrifice to get them. Folks today want a big bank account but expect someone to give them money rather than working for it. By the way, uh, that idea of, of having a big bank account and not having to work for it is why the casinos are prospering. People think that that's a way to get rich. Let me remind you, for somebody to get something that they didn't pay for, somebody has to not get something they did pay for. And uh, so be aware. Folks today want nice houses, new homes, etc., but are not willing to start with a starter home, so to speak, and work their way up. You know, I'm, I'm seeing houses being built all over this Lehigh Valley. But uh, if you've noticed, they're not building single uh, rancher-type homes any longer. Hmm. Now, when, when my wife and I got married, uh, the rancher home was a starter-type home. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what you went to. But uh, nowadays, they don't have starter homes. They have the big homes, and you've got to buy the big home. Well, anyway, folks today want nice houses, but they don't want to start out with the smaller ones. Folks today want good family lives and good marriages, but they're unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices to be a good mate and to be a good parent. It seems like the overall attitude of our generation is that everyone wants the best of everything, but no one is willing to pay the price for anything. Now, this morning in our text, we find Jesus addressing that same issue, if you will, but in a spiritual sense. Here, as we read, 
we see Jesus speaking to folks concerning those wanting to be his disciples. That's the, the main point he's making here. Those who have a desire to be his disciples, or we would say true followers of him. Jesus knew and knows the hearts of men and our humanistic attitudes. He knew that there were many there who were willing to be his disciples as long as it didn't cost them anything. These would be willing to identify with him, to speak out for him, and perhaps even to follow him as he travels. But Jesus knew these folks were looking at this from a selfish perspective. Thus he warns them ahead of time that those who will follow him will pay a price. And they had better give consideration to that fact. Be sure to count the cost, he tells them, and be prepared to suffer some things if you choose to follow me. Please bear in mind that Jesus was revealing things folks would face because they were his disciples, and he wasn't talking about things that they had to pay in order to become one of his disciples. Today, I believe we all need to hear these words of Jesus. I, need, I believe we need to give some thought to the idea that there are some costs in the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm that we must pay if we're going to be a follower of Christ. I believe we need to give some consideration to the cost of being a Christian. And I believe we also need to give consideration to the cost of not being a Christian. If you're saved here this morning, have you thought about the cost of being a Christian? Not what you have to be pay to become a Christian, but what you will pay as a result of being a Christian. If you are here without Christ today, have you thought about the cost of not being a Christian? Have you considered what you will ultimately pay because you have refused to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Well, this morning I want to spend the next few minutes with you considering these two thoughts from the Bible perspective. First of all, I want to consider the cost, the cost of being a Christian. The cost of being a Christian. Jesus said in verse 27 of our text, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And here we find Jesus making clear that being his disciple is going to cost something. Notice the phrases he uses. He says, doth not bear his cross. The cross we are to bear is our own uh, Look there, he says, um, I'm looking for my reference. There it is, verse 27. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, I was looking at that verse, and it occurred to me that when Jesus refers to his cross, he's not talking about us bearing the cross of Christ. He's talking about us bearing our own cross. Just as Jesus had a price to pay, a cross to bear, a sacrifice to be made, so do we. He had, not been, had he not been willing to pay the price, then he couldn't have been our Messiah and our Savior. He says, doth not bear his cross, and then, and come after me. Not only must we be willing to bear our cross, the cross of sacrifice, but we must also be willing to follow him. A part of being a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we be willing to follow in his footsteps. Hold your place there in Luke and go over to 1 Peter. I want you to see something Peter wrote there in 1 Peter. Chapter 2 and verse 21. Peter's writing to New Testament saints to save people, uh, who, people who know Christ. And he says this, For even hereunto, were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Jesus said we're to come after him, and if we're not willing to come after him, we cannot be his true disciple. In both instances, we notice there's a price to be paid, a cost that we as believers need to be willing to bear if we're to be the true disciples of him. And so Jesus made clear that being his disciple will cost something. And then the Bible gives us much information as to what the cost will be to those who are in or who come to trust Christ. Just what will the cost or the price be that we need to pay 
as a result of trusting Jesus as our Savior, being born again, getting saved. What can one expect to sacrifice, surrender, suffer, encounter, or endure as a Christian? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm about to tell you. Number one, we must give up our sin. Give up our sin. You say, well, that's a no-brainer, preacher. Is it really for Christians? I'm finding more and more in our day and age we're living in that uh, there's not a lot of willingness of Christians, so-called saved people who come to Christ wanting to give up their sin. We're, as a matter of fact, I blame the pulpits for a lot of this. Uh, we have preachers nowadays that don't preach against sin. Hmm? Listen, friend. We need to give up our sin when we come to Christ if we're really going to be his disciples. That's one thing that has to go in our life. I thought about Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then, Paul writes? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul deals with the issue in his day. When a person comes to Christ, they're to deal with the sin in their life. And then over in Hebrews chapter uh, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6 and verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Listen, friend, understand with me, one of the costs of being a real Christian is the giving up of our old sinful pleasures and our old sinful ways. Truly saved people are expected to deal with their sins and to rid their lives of those things that displease the Lord. Sadly, the thing that keeps some folks from becoming a Christian is that they do not want to give up their ungodly lifestyle and their sinful ways. What a shame that really is. You know, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul writes this, "...who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works." As believers, we're to, be, we're to lead purified lives. That means we're to, we're to have the impurities of our life to be removed. I thought about uh, how they refine silver. And you know, the way they refine silver is they put a fire under it and heat it up until it liquefies. And then when it liquefies, they keep heating it until the dross or the, the, the uh, waste of the silver comes to the top so they can scrape it off. And they keep doing that over and over again till there's no more dross coming up. Listen, we as believers sometimes have dross in our lives that we need to refine and we need to get out of our lives. We need to deal with our sin. Christians are, are to be people who uh, refine the believers out of their life. And then Christians are to be peculiar people. We're to be different in how we live putting sin out of our lives. We're to, we're to try to be holy people like the Bible says we should be. You know, Peter writes, be ye holy as I am holy. And that's what God said. You know, I've been accused of being a holiness preacher. And, and uh, I, I admit I am. I preach holiness because the Bible preaches holiness. But how many Christians are striving to be holy? Hmm. And you know, again, I'm burdened in the day and age we're living in that so many, so many churches, so many preachers, and uh, so many Christians are falling under this, this false idea of, well, I'm under grace, it doesn't matter how I live. Listen, friend, it does matter how you live. That's why God gave us a New Testament to teach us how to live after we've come to Christ. And uh, we find many things in the New Testament that Christians are supposed to uh, take on and, and begin doing. And then we find many things Christians are to stop doing and put aside. And uh, we're to deal with our sin. Don't just continue in it. And then Christians, according to Titus, that same verse, uh, the latter part of it says we're to be zealous to good works. We as Christians are to forsake our evil and sinful deeds and we're to replace them with good things and the right kind of things. You know, here's a thought for you. Nobody ought to have to prod a true believer to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. Hmm? We ought to have that within us that we want to do what would please the Lord. Jesus wants us to be zealous. Jesus wants us to be wanting to do, desiring to do 
what's right and what's good in his eyes. He wants us to do the right things. Uh, for, for instance, in the situation of baptism, Listen, the first step of obedience after you get saved is to be baptized by immersion by a local independent fundamental Bible-believing Baptist church. And uh, we can help you with that if you've not done that. But listen, we ought to want to do that. I shouldn't have to talk somebody into being baptized. Amen? And uh, a whole list of things that we should want to do because we now belong to him. Uh, baptism, church attendance. You know, we're in a day and age where churches are really struggling with attendance, and, and we're having difficulty with our attendance. People laying out of church. I don't understand saved people who don't want to go to church. Don't make sense to me. And the Bible says we ought to go to church, and uh, we shouldn't have to prod people to do that. Tithing, soul winning, Bible reading, prayer, clean living, and on and on we could go about things that we ought to be doing, uh, not because somebody's prodding us or, 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 or uh, shaming us into it, but because we want to, because we have, we have it inside of us that the Lord wants us to be this way. By the way, I just thought of something. We didn't put our list out for Bible reading for this year. No, we need to do that. And we encourage people every year to read through their Bible in one year. And I would challenge you, have you ever done that? Have you read through your Bible? This is a good opportunity. And we have several methods or schedules, if you will, back there on the track rack to help you to stay on track. And if you'll follow one of those, one of those plans to read through the Bible in a year, by next January the 1st, you will have read the entire Bible. I think that's a good thing to do. And I would encourage you to do that. So number one, uh, the first cost of being a Christian is giving up our sin. I'm really weary of Christians who want to, they want to be saved and they want to go to heaven when they die, but they don't want to clean up their life. That's not what God intended. And yes, we are saved by grace and we keep our salvation by grace. We cannot send it away. But that is not licensed to live any way we want to. God's grace is to bring us to where we want to live for him. And that's how it ought to be. The cost of being a Christian, number one, is we need to give up our sin. Number two, we need to surrender our will. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of, will of God. Listen, the second sacrifice we have to make of Christians is that of surrendering our will to God's will. Not my will, but thy will be done ought to be the prayer of every believer. What God wants us to do must take preference over what we want to do. Go over to Luke 22. Just a couple of pages over in Luke 22. Jesus here is in the garden. And in verse 42, here's his prayer. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Listen, that ought to be the kind of prayer that Christians pray. Not my will, but thy will be done. So we, we, have, we have to surrender our will. Listen, we have our, our own will. The natural man has his will. The flesh has its will on how it wants us to live. But God has his will. And we need, we need to surrender to God's will and what God wants. And then we need, we need to die to self. We need to let Jesus live through us. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, in another place, Paul writes this. He says, I die daily. Now, Paul didn't literally die every day. But what he was saying was, 
I die to myself every day so that I can live for the Lord. Is that your testimony? Listen, friend, we have to die to ourselves. We have a will, and our flesh wants its way. But we have to die to the desires of our flesh and live to the desires of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to want to do the Father's will rather than our will. The cost of being a Christian, number one, we have to give up our sin. Number two, we have to surrender our will. Number three, we need to separate from the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, the world and its activities, its allurements, its attitudes should have no hold on us, should have no sway on us. We are to be dead or unresponsive to the world's stimulus. We need to be separated from the world. We need to be separated in, from worldly activities. You know, how we live ought to be different than how the unsaved live. Well, three of you believe that. I'm going to say it again. We ought to live in a different way from what the unsaved live. There ought to be a difference in our lives. Why? Because we're not Christians. And now we have, we have different values. We have different uh, leadership. We have the Holy Spirit. The world and all its activities, allurements, attitudes should have no hold or sway on us. We're to be dead. We're to be unresponsive, if you will, to all of the world's stimuli. We need to be separated from the world in, in different, different areas and worldly activities. And I thought about, we, we need to be separated from drinking alcoholic beverages. You say, preacher, you're, you're preaching to the choir. We know that. Yeah, well, I'm not fool enough to believe that all the Christians in this room abstain from alcoholic beverages. But you should. The Bible is very clear about believers are not to participate in drinking alcoholic beverages. I don't care if it's beer or wine or whatever else it is. Well, anyway. How about gambling? Christians ought not to be gamblers. We shouldn't be over at the casino gambling away God's money. And I'm even against the lottery. Hmm? I'm amazed at how many people can walk into a store and buy five or six of these $5 lottery scratch-off tickets, and, uh, and yet they, they got to live on food stamps. Hello? Listen, that shouldn't be the case. And, you know, sometimes Christians get into this thing where, where they think, well, there's nothing wrong with gambling or lottery. Yeah, well, just remember, you're using God's money. Oh, no, it's mine. No, it's God's, whatever God gives you. And he wants us to use it for his praise and his glory, not for things like alcoholic beverages and gambling. How about immodest dressing? Uh-oh. We hit a sore spot there, didn't we? Listen, I, most of you know my position. I believe men ought to look like men and women ought to look like women. Amen. One of the, one of the battles today is right here in this area of, of how people dress. And you say, well, nobody should tell me how to dress. Wait a minute. God ought to tell you how to dress. And God says we should be modest in our apparel. And that's for men and women both. God's not for nakedness. Amen. And, and ladies, God's not for you wearing clothes so tight it shows every curve of your body. Mm, now it's getting quiet. You know, the Bible says we're to dress in immodest apparel and uh, primarily speaking to women. But understand when he's talking about that, he's talking about uh, loose flowing robe type dress. Hmm? How about viewing ungodly videos and movies? You know, we used to preach against going to the movie theater. Many of you, you know, you, you haven't been in the church uh, that long to remember a day when we preached against movie theaters and going there because going to the movie theater supported Hollywood. And Hollywood is nothing but, nothing but a den of perverts. Say amen. 
So we would preach against the movie theater. But nowadays, uh, it's not the movie theater because people say, well, I just won't go. I'll bring it home and watch it at home. Or I'll get Netflix or one of those services where I can just bring it into my living room. Listen, friend, it doesn't matter whether you're going to the movie theater or watching it at home. You need to be careful what you set before your eyes. And I'm not just talking about movies. I'm talking about television shows. I'm talking about indecent books and magazines and uh, that kind of thing. You know, we need, to have, we need to have biblical standards for our lives, not worldly standards for our lives. Doesn't matter what the world says is acceptable or what the world is doing. We need to live what God tells us we ought to be living. Worldly activities. How about worldly attitudes? We need to be very careful. We don't adapt the attitudes of the unsaved world out there. Like uh, pleasure at all costs is the attitude of the world. Doesn't matter what it costs. I'm just going to do what I want to do to feel good and enjoy myself. And by the way, there's always a price to pay. How about the attitude of, I make my own rules. Nobody tells me what to do. That's a worldly attitude. We should allow God to tell us what to do. How about this attitude of the world? If it feels good, do it. That's how the world operates. Doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. If it feels good, do it. And listen, a lot of Christians are buying into these attitudes. How about money buys happiness? The unsaved crowd makes money their God. How about this attitude? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's a worldly attitude. And then this one I saw on a bumper sticker. He who has the most toys when he dies wins. You talk about a hedonistic, humanistic attitude. That exemplifies it. But what scares me is sometimes Christians buy into those things. We as Christians need to give up our entanglements with the world, with its attitudes, its activities. We need to be separated from the world and different. I say it often, I'll say it again. Listen, if we're no different than them, we have nothing to offer them. I'll say it again. If we're no different than them, we have nothing to offer them. Hmm? Why should they come to Christ if he's not going to make a difference in their life? And number four, we need to endure opposition from our enemies. That's a cost of being a Christian. In Matthew 10, Jesus says this, verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. And then over in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12, Paul writes about this battle we face as Christians, the opposition we face. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Listen, friend, we're in a battle. And we need to understand, we're, we're, we're going to have to endure opposition from our enemies. That's a price we're going to have to pay. You know, just because you got saved, the devil didn't say, well, I'll leave that one alone. They've trusted Christ. I can't do any more. Heavens, no, that's not what he does. On the contrary, when you got saved, the devil said, uh-oh, now i got to fight even harder against this one. Because now it belongs to Christ and wants to do something for the Lord. I made a little note here. The Christian life is not a life of these, but is likened to a warfare. All who trust Christ must anticipate the attacks of those forces that are in direct opposition to the Lord and to his work. It's been often said the Christian life is not a playground, but a battlefield. Listen, one of the costs of being a Christian is we are going to face opposition. We're going to have opposition from the devil and his crowd. He works hard against us. And uh, oftentimes we flatter ourselves and we say, well, the devil's against me. Uh, 
Listen, the devil can't be everywhere at one time. The devil is not omnipresent. He doesn't have the attributes of God. The devil can only be in one place at one time. But here's what he has. He has an army of minions. He has an army of demons to do his bidding for him. And that's who we're fighting against. And if you're any kind of a Christian, uh, you're facing that opposition because the devil don't want you living the Christian life. Opposition from the devil. Opposition from our flesh. When you got saved, your flesh didn't get saved. Have you realized that? When you got saved, your flesh didn't get saved. Your flesh is still there. And your flesh still wants to have its way every day of your life. My flesh wants to have its way every day of my life. We have opposition, the flesh against the spirit. Go over to Galatians 5 for just a minute. Paul writes about this very thing. In Galatians 5, verse 17, well, verse 16, he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Listen, Paul's describing the battle we face every day. I don't care how long you've been saved. You, you could be saved a uh, hundred years and uh, you're still going to have the battle of the flesh against the spirit. Too many Christians are not willing to fight that battle. What do you mean? I mean, they give in to the flesh. They let the flesh have its way. And we're not supposed to do that. So we see that we have opposition from the flesh, we have opposition from Satan. We have opposition from the world. The unsaved world out there don't take kindly to us. Hmm? Have you figured out those, the unsaved out there really despise us? Well, why is that? It's because our lives, when we're living for the Lord, convict them of their sin and makes them very uncomfortable. And they think that we, you know, have you ever heard this? Well, you Baptists think you have the only way to heaven. No, we don't think we have the only way. We know the Bible has the only way. And we, we, we want people to come to Christ because that's what the Bible says it takes in order to be saved from hell. Opposition from the world. The world mocks us. The world ridicules us. And when I say the world, understand this. Sometimes it comes from our own families. Sometimes it comes from our friends. Sometimes it comes from our foes. But the opposition comes, not just from our flesh, but from out there. Every day, if you're, if you're the kind of Christian God wants you to be, every day you're fighting a battle with your flesh, with the devil, and with the world out there. They're opposing us. The world takes advantage of us. They think just because we're Christians, they can use and abuse us in ways that other people wouldn't tolerate. And then the world labels us as fools. The world belittles us and insults our intellectual abilities. Uh, they think we're a bunch of dumb yokels who don't know anything. We're ignorant. Hmm? Listen, the apostles... They were labeled as ignorant and unlearned men. And that's what the world thinks about us. It belittles us, insults our intelligence, uh, our intellectual abilities, rubs our noses in their material prosperity. Well, look at all I have, and I'm not following the Lord. Yeah, well, they don't understand that's all they're ever going to get. Hmm. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So listen, we see that the Bible preaches and teaches there's a price to be paid. There's a cost for being a Christian. And we, we from time to time, 
wonder if the cost is really worth it all. Uh, let me remind you, it will be worth it all. Hmm. Then we want to see this, the cost of being a Christian, the cost of not being a Christian. Let's look at the other side of the coin for a minute. Those who are not saved, those who are not Christians, are going to pay an even greater price than Christians pay. See, their price is going to be one of eternal suffering and loss. All right, as believers, we go through trials and tribulations and difficulties and opposition in this life. It's a price we're going to pay, but it's only for this life. What do you mean? One day we're going to die and graduate to glory and there is no more opposition. And we'll spend all eternity in bliss. The unsaved will spend all eternity in eternal torment. The price of not being a Christian. The first thing is the loss of forgiveness of sins. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 14, the Bible says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. There, there can be no forgiveness of sins apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I made me a little note here, and I like my note, so I'm going to share it with you. There is no pope, no priest, no potentate, no preacher who can absolve us of our sins. The only one that can cleanse us and make us clean is the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming to him in his shed blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Listen, friend, there is no forgiveness apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Timothy, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he says, There is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, many of you know I grew up in the Roman Catholic faith, and I was taught I had to go to confession. I had to go and kneel in that little booth and, and, the, and tell the priest all the bad things that I had done. And, uh, and that was the only way that I could get forgiveness of my sins. And then he would give me some penance I had to do. If you ex-Roman Catholics, you know what I'm talking about. And that would be, say, seven Hail Marys and three Our Fathers or something like that in order to be absolved of my sin. Uh, the problem with all that is none of it is biblical. That's a man-made system, and it won't wash away one sin. The only way to have our sins forgiven is to come to Jesus Christ and accept what he did in payment for us and in payment for our sin. Those who die without Jesus are going to have to pay their own sin debt Go over to Revelation, if you will, chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11 through 15 tell us about what the unsaved are going to face if they die without Christ. It says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Listen, that's what awaits every person who dies without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They're going to face that judgment. All of their sinful deeds are, are going to be remembered against them. They're all written down in the books of heaven. And those books are going to be opened. And all their evil deeds, all their sinful deeds are going to be remembered against them. And then they're going to check the Lamb's book of life. Listen, the only way to have your name in the Lamb's book of life is to get saved. 
to come to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Savior. And when they check that book of the Lamb's Book of Life, if your name's not in there, you are cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his bunch, and you will suffer torment forever and ever and ever and ever. Time without end. The loss of forgiveness of our sins. There's another cost of not being a Christian. The loss of peace in this life. In Philippians 4, 7, Paul writes to believers, and he says this, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I don't know, maybe you've noticed that those who are in Christ, saved people, have an inner and lasting peace that the world doesn't know anything about. Saved people have a peace with God. Unsaved people are at enmity or at war with God. When you come to Jesus Christ, you're made to be at peace with God. No more warfare. The unsaved don't have the peace that we have. Those in Christ have an inner lasting peace. Peace with God. Peace about our eternal destiny. Listen, I got saved in 1974. I've had peace ever since then of what's going to happen to me when I die. I settled the issue. I came to Jesus Christ, and anyone who's come to Jesus Christ goes to heaven when they die, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I wonder, have you settled that issue yet? Can I remind you, and this isn't good news, but you're going to die. Is it appointed of all men once to die? The question is, what's going to happen after you die? Will you go to heaven or will you go to hell? Listen, there's a peace that comes on you when you come to Christ, but the unsaved can't know that peace. The unsaved can't find that peace of knowing when I die, I'm going to heaven. Those without Christ have peace in any of those areas. The unsaved crowd is always looking for some way to have peace and to find contentment and satisfaction. That's why they, they go to the drugs. That's why they go to the liquor. That's why they go to the immortality, immorality and all those kind of things. Why? They're looking for peace, and they can't find it. The unsaved suffer the loss of forgiveness of their sins, the loss of peace in this life, the loss of the promises of God's Word. Oh, my soul. I'm so very thankful for this book. I've said many times, this book right here is the guide of my life. And as I read this book, I find a lot of promises God has made to his people. What do you mean his people? To save people. He's promised us eternal life. He's promised us forgiveness of our sins. He's promised to be with us and never leave us nor forsake us. He's promised to supply our every need. On and on we could go with the promises God has made in his word for believers. But for the unbeliever, none of those promises are any good. There's only one promise God will keep for an unbeliever. He promises he will save them if they'll come to Jesus Christ and receive him. Other than that, none of the promises of the Bible apply to unsaved people. I wouldn't want to live that way, to be honest with you. I'm so very glad I can get in this book and I can find the promises of God, the precious promises of God that he's made to me, and I, and I can claim them because I'm his child. Hmm. None of the promises of care or provision or forgiveness or power to overcome sin or divine leadership and on and on we could go are applicable to an unsaved person. Hmm. And then another loss, cost of not being a Christian, the loss of any hope of heaven when they die. John 14, 6, Jesus made it so clear. He said, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is absolutely, listen to me, there is absolutely no way for an unsaved person, a person who has never received Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, to go to heaven when they die. Now, I know the Catholic Church, I was brought up that way, and they teach that you could go to purgatory, and people can say novenas and light candles and pray for you and 
do good stuff for you and somehow uh, get you out of purgatory. That's a lie from hell. There's no such place as purgatory. When a person dies, they go to one of two places. They're either going to heaven and be with God forever, or they're going to hell and be with the devil forever. That's what the Bible teaches. And so the cost of not being a Christian, absolutely no hope. No matter how good they are, no matter how religious they are, no matter how much money they give to the church, no matter how many good things they do, it doesn't matter. There is no way they're ever going to get to heaven. Peter writes and says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. John 5, I love these verses, 11 through 13. And this is the record that God had given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. James writes in James 2, 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? And then there's one more, cost, not being a Christian. The loss of hope of ever seeing our loved ones again. Hmm. How many have, uh, of you have loved ones that have passed on? They, 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 they've died. How many of you have hope of seeing them again? Well, listen, that only hope can come if they know the Lord is their Savior and you know the Lord is your Savior. Those who die in Christ immediately go to heaven. Those who die without Christ go immediately to, go to hell. And Jesus teaches us there's no way for a person to pass from one to the other once they arrive there. I warn people we have an eternal destiny. Once we die, our eternal destiny is settled. The decision on where you're going to go when you die, heaven or hell, is made in this life. Hmm? See, after we die, there's no more opportunity to get saved. It's imperative that we get saved now in this life. And then as Paul said, and I, I repeated earlier, then to be absent from the body will be to be present with the Lord. Here's what the Bible teaches. At the instant a person who's saved closes their eyes in death, they step right into the presence of the Lord and they stay there forever. On the contrary, the person who dies without Christ, who dies without being saved, as soon as they close their eyes in death, they wake up in hell and they'll never be able to get out of hell. Over in Luke uh, chapter 16, Jesus said this. Remember, it's a story of Lazarus and the rich man and how the rich man woke up in hell. And he, he wants somebody to, to just dip their finger in water and cool his tongue. And, and Jesus uh, says this. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Listen, friend, the cost of not being a Christian is an eternal suffering in hell. Now, most folks in this room would profess to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, and I'm glad for that. But, friend, that idea that that's what's awaiting unsaved people ought to stir us to want to be witnesses and testimonies to the unsaved that they not die and go to hell. Hmm. Jesus was aware that there would be a great price to be paid by those who would receive him as their personal Savior. And so he warns those who would come to him as, as to what they might expect to pay or suffer as a result of their becoming true followers of him. He shows the cost of being a Christian, giving up our sin, surrendering our will, separation from the world, opposition from our enemies. But then there's a great price to those who die without Christ. And there it is, a loss of forgiveness, 
of our sins, a loss of peace in this life, a loss of all the blessings promised in God's word, the loss of any hope of heaven when they die, and the loss of hope of seeing loved ones once again. I have, I have loved ones in heaven. And I believe with all my heart, when I slip out of this life, I'm going to go and see them again. They were saved and I'm saved. But listen, I also have loved ones that died without Christ. There's no hope ever seeing them again. Hmm? We'll be eternally separated. Thank God that we can know the Lord. Here's the question today. Which price do you want to pay? There's, listen, there's a cost to being saved. And there's a cost to not being saved. Which price would you rather pay? I made my decision a long time ago. Maybe you need to make your decision today. Let's bow our heads for just a minute. We've talked about the price of being a Christian. I want to talk to those in this room who profess to know Christ as their Savior. I want to talk to you for a minute. Have you recognized the price that's to be paid by those who profess to be Christians? Have you been willing to pay the price? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I wonder how many believers in this room could honestly say, Preacher, I've been willing to pay the price of being a Christian, giving up my sin and forsaking the world and, and all those things, giving my will over to God. I believe, I believe to the best of my ability, I'm paying the price of being a Christian. Here's my hand. Would you hold it up high? God bless you. Put it down. I wonder how many believers in this room could not raise their hand. You've been holding out on God. There's some things you, you need to give up. There's some things you need to forsake. There's some things you need to start doing. I wonder if there's some folks in this room today say, Preacher, God's speaking to me about my Christian life and how it needs to change. Here's my hand. Would you hold it up high? Hold it up high. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. My Christian life needs, needs to change. I need to be different. Listen, maybe you've not been willing to be different from the world. And today, God's speaking to your heart about you need to take a stand. You need to separate from the world. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask this question. Are you saved? If you're saved, if you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, you've settled that issue. You know that when you die, you're going straight to heaven to be with him because you've been born again, you've been saved. If that's you, raise your hand. All right, put it down. I didn't see everybody that did or didn't raise their hand, but I want to ask you, if you could not raise your hand a minute ago, would you today come to Jesus? Would you be willing today to open your heart and receive him as your personal Savior? If there's one or, or several who would say this morning, Preacher, I need to get saved. I need to ask Jesus to save me. I don't want to die and go to hell I want to step into heaven when my eyes close in death. I want Jesus to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me so that I might have eternal life. Here's my hand. Would you hold it up high? Hold it up high. Anyone at all. Please, friend, don't die without Jesus. Don't die without knowing where you're going when you die. Eternal torment in hell is what's waiting for you. Anyone at all. Preacher, that's me. I need to get saved today. Here's my hand. Let's stand together. 489 in your songbook. God spoke to you. Maybe you need to come speak to him.